What's everybody? Marshall Media Montage, episode 49. I'm going to be talking about House 1985, a classic with William Catt and uh, Norm from Cheers, done by uh, Sean S. Cunningham and Harry Manfredini, the guys who were behind the uh, classic Friday the 13th. Um, before, obviously, Jason got the hockey mask and so forth. I guess they took a break and decided to make this uh, kind of horror comedy poltergeist, quote unquote, loose spoof, I guess, if you will. Or at least that's what I like to call it. But it's it's fucking awesome. I love it. It's definitely a classic. It's definitely better than the other two films I'm about to mention that I'm re- <laughs> reviewing. Um, L.A. AIDS Jabber, yes, also known as Just the Jabber. Um, a classic, uh, I guess, SOV shot on video horror film that has re- uh, recently resurfaced from the depths, I guess, more or less, on a 2B, which is also free to watch. And then... Um, uh, what is it? Wizards of the uh, Lost Kingdom, the uh, first one. I just found out that there is a sequel. I'm actually covering the uh, first film, which was produced by uh, Roger Corman. So, uh, you know, I mean, all three are great in their own right. Uh, House is definitely better. But uh, yes, I'm going to be talking uh, House, 1985, LAH Jabber, and uh, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom. So here it is, episode 49. Thank you for letting me ramble for about a minute and a half before I decide to go into my uh, reviews and let you guys know anything and everything you want to know about these great classic not so (laughs) oscar worthy films so here it is thank you episode 49 let's go all right everybody house 1985 an r-rated film It is an hour and 33 minutes Uh, it's about a troubled writer who moves into a haunted house after inheriting it from his aunt. It has a 6.1 on IMDb out of 28,000 reviews. That's decent. I think it deserves more credit than that, but it's it's definitely something to uh, behold in regards to a review, I guess, for a uh, horror film. But like I said, it's more like a horror comedy. Uh, it stars William Catt, uh, Kay Lenz as Sandy, the wife, and George Went. Uh, yep, Norm from Cheers as Harold, the neighbor. And Mary Stavin, uh, from A View to Kill, and Octopussy as Tanya, the neighbor who uh, basically is in his swimming pool. And she's like, hey, I need you to babysit my son. And uh, William Cat is, like, trying to bury this uh, ghoul, I guess, if you will, that he thought was his wife. I'll, I'll get into it. Who uh, essentially transforms into this giant, like, ugly-looking woman creature thing. I'll get into that momentarily. But uh, in other words, Tanya is in the backyard, and he's like, cutting up this uh, body and he's like trying to dispose of the body like in the yard and she's like trying to talk to him and he's clearly putting like his foot on like the ghoul's hand as it tries to move closer to his foot so yeah it has that horror com- uh, comedic element but uh, I'll get into that momentarily so uh, on IMDb it says that it's directed by Steve Miner but I swore I saw in the credits of the film that it was Friday the 13th's uh, Sean S. Cunningham uh, but I I also found that it was actually produced by Sean S. Cunningham, not directed by him. So, also scored by Harry Manfredini, as I stated, that of Friday the 13th franchise, which is pretty awesome. Uh, okay, so produced, yes, by Cunningham. Uh, trivially, the uh, monster in the closet is actually designed to look like napalmed bodies from uh, Vietnam with uh, bullets for fingers. But in fact, it's more reminiscent of the beast in the first Hellraiser. Uh, in my perspective, at least it is, you know. That's definitely what it looks like. Every time I talk to my buddies who uh, we watch uh, horror, we usually are like, yep, remember that creature that was in the closet that looked just like Hellraiser but came out a few years before Hellraiser? Yeah. You know, shout out to Clyde Barker. But anyway, original screenplay, uh, Fred Decker, was traditionally uh, horror uh, and not humor at all. So 
comedic uh, antics and aspects were actually added by Ethan Wiley when he uh, rewrote the script. So that's kind of cool. Uh, fans will be pleased to hear that Kane Hodder, that of uh, Friday the 13th, uh, Jason's stunt double, or not necessarily double, his stunt, I guess, coordinator, whatever you want to call him, uh, was actually in this film uh, for being, st- or yes, working with Steve Miner and directed uh, Friday the 13th Part 2. So kind of cool that they all kind of came together and worked together on this. I, I really, uh, it's nice to hear that and see that in writing. I'm like, oh, cool. Like they clearly are all fans of each other's work. Uh, House 2, the second story, features an appearance by John uh, Ratzenberger, who played uh, Cliff, Norm's best friend from Cheers. So it was kind of cool that, you know, you see Norm here in the first one, and then uh, you see Cliff in the second one. The second one, I can definitely touch up on uh, another uh, episode, and I will do a review on that for sure. I, the second one's like basically Indiana Jones meets like horror comedy. It's an adventure horror. It's It's weird. The first one is also weird in its own right, but it definitely has a lot more horror comedic elements in my perspective. Uh, in Hong Kong, the film is actually known as don't go into the house after midnight, which makes sense because William Cat sets up a camera in uh, the closet or excuse me, in the room next to the closet where his aunt uh, hung himself in the, or hung him. Yeah. The aunt hung himself. Okay. I was able to speak English. It just didn't make any fucking sense that time. So <laughs> you don't get your one on this one. Um, the aunt hung herself in the room next to the closet and uh, William Katz character, uh, Roger Cobb, uh, sets up a camera and uh, basically ghouls and creatures, demons, whatever, don't necessarily come out of the closet or appear in the home uh, until after midnight. So I guess that's why Hong Kong decided to rename it. Makes sense. Uh, funny enough, um, Glenn Close and Sigourney Weaver were actually considered for the lead female role. I'm glad they went with uh, the other woman rather than these two. I mean, not that... I wouldn't mind seeing a, uh, I guess, an A-class tier uh, actress as a, a lead female role for a horror comedy, but it just, I don't think it would have been as fitting. Uh, the house to use, or, okay, yeah, once again, I can speak English, didn't make any sense though. The house used is an 1887 Victorian home actually in Monrovia, California, which is only maybe about, I don't know, an hour north or so from me, and I might have to go visit it and take a picture and send it to my homies who are fans of this. So, ha ha. Anyway, <laughs> the film was uh, shot in eight weeks, uh, two months. The interior uh, built um, for the uh, house to be used for the film was actually on the old Desilu Studios. So thank you, Lucille Ball. You know, rest in peace for that. And also for those of you who don't know, uh, without Lucille Ball, there wouldn't have been Star Trek for those uh, Trekkie fans out there. Uh, now, Wikipedia says that House 1986, the comedy horror overall film collected $22.1 million worldwide, released February 28th, 1986, with a budget of $3 million. So a positive $19 million is pretty solid for a horror comedy uh, independent film, more or less. I mean, Sean S. Cunningham was already well-endowed, uh, you know, at least, what, probably four years prior, or maybe it was, yeah, 1980 was, uh, yeah, because 1980 was Friday the 13th, and 81 was The Burning, which quote-unquote, that was also another one that was a staple that doesn't really get mentioned much. Yeah, The Burning was pretty cool. It has Jason Alexander in it. Uh, yes, um, George Costanza, can't stand you, from Seinfeld uh, in The Burning. A uh, really cool uh, horror film. Anyway, back to this. Loosely, for those who haven't seen this film, Roger Cobb, a returning Vietnam vet, played by William Catt, as I stated, an author inherits a mansion. The uh, aunt hangs herself uh, because the house tricks her into doing so since it is haunted. 
Roger, separated from his wife, uh, Jimmy, their son, disappears in a swimming pool. He's uh, pressured to write another book, um, Roger Cobb, by his, uh, you know, I guess publishing company. And he plans uh, basing the story on his experiences in Vietnam in a way to purge his horrors, essentially, uh, through writing experience there. Uh, Roger moves into the house and hallucinates about his time and comrade uh, Big Ben, who uh, perished in the war, along with uh, phenomena that the house presents itself to him, he essentially experiences as well. He tries to convey, uh, you know, fears to Harold, uh, the neighbor, uh, who's Norm, like I stated, uh, who truly believes that he's essentially crazy. One night, uh, they investigate the closet in the aunt's bedroom. He's attacked by a deformed monster inside, which, like, that's the uh, napalm-bodied um, monster, which I said looks like reminiscent of the uh, Hellraiser creature that you see uh, in the first film by uh, Clive Barker in 1988. In, in this film in House, you see it a, a little more up close and personal. I, see, I feel like when you look at it in Hellraiser, it looks like it's far away and it's coming closer. In this one, it looks like it's already kind of close, so you get a better look on it. Uh, anyway, so soon more attacks occur in the house, uh, including floating gardening tools, which is kind of like an early reminiscence of practical effects meets like it's definitely a predate CGI, but it just the way that it's shot though, it's almost like real and fake. Uh, it's, it's really cool the way that it's done. I, I really enjoyed that aspect. Uh, his wife appears at the front door. Roger drops a shotgun shell and she picks it up. And this is easily, easily. I think I'm not the only one on this one. Easily my favorite practical prosthetics costume effect in the entirety of this uh, film i fucking love this part you know because his wife's clearly like a blonde bombshell and the house is playing a trick on him he drops a shotgun uh, shell because you know he's clearly going crazy and he has a shotgun in the house and he's like okay i'm gonna protect myself from these you know ghouls and ghosts or whatever in the house drops the shell she picks it up and she returns as like this deformed uh, michelin stay puff marshmallow woman fucking thing with gangly zombie teeth and a dress that's all fucked up and like spider hair it's just it's glorious it's beautiful obviously it's atrocious in reality but i mean the fact that so much work went into it was just really cool so she appears to transform into this hideous hag-like creature who he believes that he kills and then uh the gremlin creatures attempt to kidnap the neighbor child uh jimmy no not jimmy jimmy's actually his son like i said tanya drops off her boy uh with Roger to a babysit. So essentially she uses her body, you know, to basically get what she wants. Cause she, th or, uh, Roger Cobb thinks that, uh, Tanya is interested in her. And then clearly she just is like, Oh, he likes me. I guess I can use him to babysit my son. Yeah. What an asshole. Right. So he babysits the, uh, uh, neighbor, Tanya, her, uh, son. And eventually he harpoons the uh, closet monster. Uh, it's a little out of uh, loop here in regards to the story. I'm just more or less conveying like um, different aspects that I felt like needed to be mentioned. It's not chronologically. So just, just bear with me. Uh, he becomes, or excuse me, he becomes dragged inside uh, to a Vietnam flashback where uh, big Ben, his partner in uh, Nam uh, is actually kidnapped uh, Ben was actually, uh, shot, not necessarily killed then, but he was, uh, tortured in a prisoner of war, uh, camp. And I'll explain that later. Luckily he escapes, but finds a, uh, re-entry through the medicine cabinet to the other world. Uh, Roger Cobb does. He finds his son, Jimmy, and escapes up into the, uh, pool, heads inside is, and confronted by Ben, who not so happy that Roger didn't kill him when he asked to be, 
essentially murdered in Nam because he was injured. He already knew that if he wasn't going to be a murder, that he was going to become a prisoner of war, more or less. So that's why that makes sense. Roger confronts him and blows him up with a gra- uh, grenade, reuniting him uh, and his wife, as well as Jimmy the Kid credits. So production-wise, uh, this began in April of 85, spanning four weeks. The uh, spikes on the roof uh, in Monrovia, California, where the film – or where the film – Still still speaking English, just didn't make any sense. Where the uh, house was uh, filmed was owned by two firemen brothers uh, off Melrose Avenue. Uh, the backyard was actually decrepit, so landscapers brought in flowers and reseeded the lawn. Also, there was a faux walkway made from plywood painted gray to look like concrete. I almost feel like I want to rewatch it just so I can pay attention to that. I didn't notice that before. Movie magic, right? The Vietnam sets actually took three days to build on sound stages. Thank you to Desi Lu, I'm assuming. Uh, seven monsters were made throughout the film. The uh, obese witch, which, oh, I love it. Uh, the zombie Big Ben costume. I mean, you can tell that there's clearly somebody inside that costume because you can see his actual skin tone mouth when he speaks rather than it just looking like a skeleton. But it is what it is. You know, it's 1985. I'm not going to complain. I'm just saying you can notice. Uh, three demon kids, uh, which that was a pretty cool sequence too. They try and pull up, uh, Tanya's little boy through like the chimney, the way that it's shot. I'm assuming it's like either like on a flat ground, but it looks like it's shot upwards. So they're pulling the kid up through the chimney, but you know, just once again, movie, uh, trickery is what it looks like. Uh, a flying skull, a uh, mounted Marlin, um, that comes to life. Basically just picture like that 20 fucking dollar like father's day you know big mouth bass like hey happy father's day whatever with the shitty electronic yeah basically a picture of giant marlin that comes to life and it doesn't sing but is clearly trying to kill william cat uh roger cobb's character uh and a uh, war demon which was the uh, one with the bullets uh for fingers more or less the one that's in the closet that comes out uh, so, which was uh, actually constructed by 17 uh, special effects artists over three and a half months. Just this particular uh, closet monster. Super cool. The war demon in particular in the closet measured 18 feet and was mechanized, operated by 15 of the 17 special effects artists and featured a working uh, lower bowel, uh, bowel system. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a lot of work for that. Fuck. It doesn't even look that large, but I almost feel like I want to research that now. Uh, house opened in 1440 theaters and missed first place to pretty in pink at the time, which is clearly, it's a classic eighties film. I mean, this has a cult classic following more or less house, but I mean, pretty in pink. I mean, most people know, you know, Molly Shannon and, uh, not Molly Shannon, fucking Molly Ringwald, Molly Shannon's superstar. Wow. I'm retarded. Um, yeah, Molly Ringwald and, uh, who's got a ducky. I mean like, yeah, dude, pretty in pink is a classic, man. I love that film too. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gives House a 57%, so close to uh, IMDb. Overall, I love it. Uh, go watch it, seriously. It's a cult classic. It's It deserves more love and more notoriety and is getting a new coat of paint on it soon, according to Sean S. Cunningham. I don't know whether it's the end of this year or uh, sometime next year, but yes, there is a quote-unquote remake or reboot, I guess, if you will, of House. There are four films overall. The first one, obviously, this one I'm mentioning, 1986, and then uh, House 2. House 3 is known as Horror Show, and then House 4 comes back, and it's a Roman numeral. I want to say 4 was maybe like a straight-to-video kind of thing. 3 is not so bad. It has Lance Henriksen in it. 4, it's okay. 1 and 2 are clearly the best. You can say the same thing about 
Phantasm, more or less. Phantasm, I'll have to talk uh, eventually one of these days, too. The Tall Man, Angus Scrim, you know, boy, done by Don Coscarelli. Okay, enough about, I can talk horror for days and nights, and I guess most of my listeners probably could, too. Anyway, moving on, I'm actually going to be talking another horror film, but I'm going to take a break first. All right, as weird as this title sounds, uh, yes, L.A. AIDS Jabber, <laughs> 1994, also known as Just the Jabber. It is an hour and 18 minutes long. A guy, Jeff, who uh, has been diagnosed with AIDS, decides to get revenge on the world by attacking people with a needle filled with his own blood. According to IMDb, it has a 4.6 out of, guess this, how many reviews? 83. <laughs> I'm I'm not messing around. 83 reviews. That's incredible. This might be a C movie uh, territory here, uh, but it's not a bad idea for a horror flick. And it also has a good twist ending overall. Uh, but admittedly, yes, the visually it sucks. The acting sucks. Dialogue and sound quality all suck. It's trash. But a very, very clever premise for a film. It, it, it had my attention. The uh, cover art as well as the name. I was like, L.A. Age Jabber. I was like, I'm from L.A. I was like, let me see what this is all about. Uh, no pictures of the cast, according to IMDb, and directed by Drew Goderis. Uh, no trivia found either on IMDb. <laughs> so really not – it's like I got like a page and a half of notes on this one. So neither released. Uh, you know, so – New Year's in uh, 94 with a, uh, excuse me. Yes. So there was no trivia and there was no, uh, no, <sighs> fuck. I guess I can't speak English. Let me, uh, back up there. No trivia found. And it was released New Year's in 94. Fucking can't speak English. There it is. There's your one for now, uh, <laughs> with a budget of $69,000. So going, Goering. Well, there's number two in the span of fucking 20 seconds. Can't speak English. I was hoping I can go this entire episode without having to say that, but it is what it is. <laughs> going rural. Are you a uh, fuck? Wow. Going rural. Three. Can't fucking speak English. Going rural on the film with a holy shit. <laughs> with a review from uh, Voices on the Balcony. No wiki this time because I think if it's shot on video quality, SOV. Uh, I'm sure that's probably why I didn't really garner some sort of wiki uh, wiki page. So I was like, all right, I managed to find this, and I found it interesting enough, so I figure I'll share. Thank you to Jim Morazzini, August 10th of last year, 2022. So thank you, Jim, for this info that I'm about to use on my podcast. Uh, Jeff diagnosed with AIDS isn't necessarily all up there in this. Uh, yeah, all up there uh, in his head, I guess, more or less is what I was trying to say. Jeez, before I catch myself and saying I can't fucking speak English. His therapist thinks uh, the same of him. His reaction to the news about his uh, diagnos- uh, diagnosis goes from a failed suicide attempt to revenge in L.A., starting with Tanya, another Tanya, uh, not the same one. Uh, the other Tanya in House was actually in uh, two James Bond films, uh, Octopussy and I. the other one slips my mind. But anyway, this is a different Tanya, L.A. AIDS jabber. Uh, starting with Tanya, a hooker he believes uh, contracted it from uh, Jeff does. On another uh, quick note, this is actually the only written and directed film by Drew Goderis, who has been uh, in a few films himself. Cult favorites like that of Blood Diner, which I'm pretty sure I own and have seen. Really cool uh, 
cover art, like a motel kind of uh, neon light looking type deal, and uh, Evil Spawn. Excuse me. Back to the matter at hand. So subplot, Detective Rogers and Stearns try to attack. Wow. Can't fucking speak English. Try to track down Jeff. What is that, number four or five in the span of just three and a half minutes? Holy shit. And I'm actually sober, too. And one of many obstacles, uh, Stern's character, Tony uh, Don, Don Angelo. Yeah, Don Angelo. Excuse me. Uh, had to be replaced uh, mid-shot. So he was actually given an off-screen death and replaced by Detective Smithers. No Simpsons pun intended. Shout out to the Simpsons. But uh, I didn't realize that it was a... Uh, um, he left, or excuse me, I guess had to be replaced uh, mid-shot. I thought it was just a, a call on the writers that they were like, you know, how about we kill off the detective? Because I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, subplot of a subplot. I was like, well, maybe they should, you know, uh, show a little more in regards to that because he was killed off in regards um, something like it was a drunk driver, I think, that ran into him and killed him. And then uh, the uh, detective Rogers that he was with, she was like, oh, you know, he had kids and all this and they were going to go get a, you know, a house out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, barbecue. And so, you know, I, I see what they were trying to do, but it would have been nice if they, I don't know, went a little more into it. Anyway, funny to me that it was also interesting enough that there was a scene where the detectives and the police captain are actually overheard by a, a scanner that looks like a low-end boombox. And I thought it was more or less, but now that I'm discovering that it's a scanner, <laughs> yeah, I, I thought maybe they just accidentally, quote-unquote, picked up a, a radio signal. But not intentionally funny, but, you know, whatever. Nonetheless, it was. The fact is, the plot, as it gives, uh, some of it sounds like, the, it, it's not really, to do a film like this, it's not going to be tasteful, but Drew Goddard seemed to be afraid in order to be offensive to his audience as well as uh, you know viewers and so forth that are going to review this film at the time. But it could have been a tacky thriller or even a you know black comedy more or less. But like I said, it was interesting and intriguing enough, uh, the cover art as well as the title and the premise. But overall, it lacks in every category, in my perspective. Um, there is very little blood. There is, but it, you can tell it's super fake. I mean, most of the time with these old horror films, you you already know what you're getting into. But it just it was like over the top. Like, okay, that's a giant syringe. That's a giant like cylindrical piece of equipment that you're using to pull blood out of yourself that looks fake to put into others, and it looks like you know tomato paste or whatever, like neon tomato paste, borderline. But uh. Yeah, very little blood and violence throughout this film. Uh, the final act twist, which I actually won't spoil for you guys. I was going to say, uh, it's a very short film. You, you can finish in an hour and what, like 10 minutes or whatever I said. So uh, I usually, yes, tend to spoil things, but not this time. I, I would recommend, or even don't even fucking watch the movie. Just look at the twist ending or whatever. You might not necessarily understand, but and the, the whole film is really not really much to understand. Uh, so... It's very similar to that of uh, kind of how the original uh, 1969 Night of the Living Dead uh, left me feeling. That, that's how I felt when I uh, finally uh, finished the film. I actually, I think I sat through it maybe like once or twice. Uh, no, probably like actually like two or three times this film because it was just so grainy, the whole SOV aspect to it. I did maybe like 10 minutes increments and then another like 10, 15 minute increments. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to fucking finish this movie. It's not very long. But it took me a minute, and I, I'm glad that I finished it. Like I said, that twist ending was really cool. Uh, 
So that's really it. Not too much on this film. Trivially, actually, last uh, minute, I found uh, the actor who played Jeff, the antagonist, Jason Magic. Magic, I'm not quite sure how to uh, pronounce it, but was in a film called A Dangerous Place, 1994, with Corey Feldman about martial arts. I might have to dig that one out of the vault and see if I can find it and watch it. It sounds pretty interesting. Uh, he was also on the uh, Ultraman TV series from 1993 to 1995. Pretty cool. So there you have it. Uh, there it is, L.A. Age Jabber. Uh, like I said, you don't have to watch it if you don't want to. It's free on Tubi or just go watch the ending on YouTube. I'm sure it's there too. All right, I'm going to take a quick little break again, and I'm going to get back to uh, my final uh, fantasy film that I'd like to go over. Let's go. <clears throat> All right, closing out this uh, little movie um, review segment on uh, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom 1985. It is an hour and 12 minutes, uh, also free on uh, Tubi TV. I think uh, besides just uh, a corny horror, I would also like to see if I can start covering uh, martial arts movies as well as uh, fantasy films. I really, really enjoy fantasy films for the uh, spectra- uh, you know, practical special effects for the time. They're just really cool. And just the premise, the music, the costuming, all of it. It's just corny and cool in its own way that i enjoy anyway the uh, premise behind the film is when evil screams throughout the world all the galaxies converge all that's fair and seems uh, lost a hero will emerge simon the son of a wizard must flee uh, when the empire is overthrown by the evil shirka uh, schooled in the arts of magic he must find the ring of magic the sword of power and defeat the evil shirka wizards avenging uh his father I smell a fantasy version of uh, most martial arts movies as well as even most westerns, actually, that were leading up to uh, these adventure fantasy films to be made. Because most martial arts are kind of that, you know, you killed my master, I'm going to go kill you. And then westerns, you killed my pa, I'm going to find you and gun you down. It's the same fucking premise. But hey, it works. Uh, so he is joined on his quest by Swordmaster Kor, K-O-R. I mean, you know, these barbarian names are just so cool. Uh, who, excuse me, uh, is a faithful, uh, Harry and the Hendersons. Okay. More or less. Okay. Hear me out. So the Swordmaster core and, uh, Simon's faithful, uh, companion, I guess, more or less, uh, as I call him, Harry and the Henderson Hendersons, Chewbacca's nephews, uncle to Falcor from Neverending Story, sister's brother-in-law, and his name is Golfax. Yes. That all makes sense, right? No, but <laughs> He almost looks like the snow creature from the beginning of Empire Strikes Back, Episode 5, uh, Star Wars. Uh, basically just with curly fur, and he's white. That's why I mentioned Falcor, so shout out to Neverending Story 2. And the forest wizard, uh, Hurla, who is a midget with a force field. Yes, you heard me right. He like He's in a little hut house hobbit thing. You know, Shout out to uh, Tolkien there. Uh, and he's like, I can't use my magic past this force field. And he basically just passes like his little fence or whatever and he's like okay now i can use my magic i'm like what the like what the fuck uh, anyway clearly just bad writing and editing in its own right but for what it was worth I, you know i i enjoyed it okay this film actually has a 2.9 out of uh 1791 reviews directed by hector oliveira or oliveira excuse me Starring uh, many people that I feel I've never seen other than Maria Socas, who was actually also in Deathstalker, the uh, first one, which has really, really cool cover art, Deathstalker 1 and 2. And I've seen those both in the wild. I should have just picked them up, and I didn't. 
I think I haven't seen them. I, I didn't see them at the time, and now I watch them, and I'm like, man, I should have got those. But anyway, uh, which is similar to this film, Deathstalker. It's just with more gratuitous random nudity as where this film is much more tame in that regard uh, of even scantily clad. I don't even think there's any like scantily clad women in this film. Uh, but this film has cool, cheesy effects, a uh, terrible plot, atrocious acting, and overly done comedic aspects by Bo Svensson. Core's uh, character, the uh, you know wandering swordsman, I guess more or less, kind of like that of uh, Han Solo, but it's clearly forced. No Star Wars pun intended, uh, and it's not subtle at all. His uh, humor, he's just like, yeah, well, I don't know why I was about to do Sylvester Stallone. Excuse me. <laughs> he's like, hey, what, are we uh, gonna go now or what? Or later? I, you know what I mean? It's just, I don't know. It's like, I like dad jokes, but it's it's not even dad jokes. I don't know how to describe it. Just go fucking watch it. Not that I didn't like the film. I did for what it's worth, even though, yes, it was bad, but it's it's a good bad, I guess, you know? I, I think even one of the reviews on IMDb was like, it's so bad, it's good, and I think they gave it a 5 out of 10, and I was like, I probably would have done the same thing. That's more or less what I'm doing now, uh, just audibly rather than writing it. The cover art alone should get anyone who likes fantasy intrigued. It's, it's such a classic, like, paperback novel, like, fantasy cover look. Uh, funny enough, the griffin on the front, he doesn't even actually ride at all. And it, that creature is actually a dragon, a G, a G, yeah, starts with a G. Dragon starts with a G, yeah. In what fucking world does that ever occur or happen? Yeah, I can't speak English, and I can't even, I don't even know English anymore because I'm using G for fucking dragon. A dragon, yeah. Release the dragon. No, that's a kraken, too. Any fucking, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that, the dragon d-r-a-g-o-n-n-e uh has a battle with some sort of like space queen face thing up in the sky with magic powers picture the spirit demon dog gargoyle thing from uh ghostbusters one are you the gatekeeper you know that woman uh you know looking more like a dragon uh, more or less rather than a gargoyle that's on the cover art of uh, this film yeah you know sort of a tangent sorry about that Truly, the film was only 58 minutes with its initial cut. Editors actually took footage from Roger Corman's sword and sorcery films, creating a 20-minute prologue that has nothing to do with the rest of the film and the dream sequence and uh, Gnome's uh, magic scrying uh, also from other films. Wow. Uh, I did a little more research, and uh, Roger Corman was actually a producer of this film, and he basically granted them permission to do so. I'll get into that momentarily as well. Uh, funny enough, on the poster I mentioned, it features... Uh, the dragon, which I later was uh, corrected, and I did research, and I was like, "Oh, that's what those are called," because uh, I guess it. Anyway, it also features a, a skexy uh, on the cover of this uh, film, um, which is actually from Dark Crystal, nineteen eighty-two. Shout out to Jim Henson, and as I mentioned, the dragon, not the uh, Griffin, uh, from a D and D board game. Actually, uh, neither of those either appear in the film, uh, so. I don't know what that creature was at the end of the film that does the battle with uh, that weird face thing in the sky. But yeah, there you go. That's, that's about all I got for you. All right, moving on. Have a nice night. I'm just kidding. Let me finish. Released uh, May 17th, 1985, also known as Wizard Wars. Uh, production, uh, you know, the film w used stock footage, uh, as I mentioned, from these two films, Sorceress 1982 and Deathstalker 1983, respectively, which came out uh, two to three years prior to uh, this film in 85, which are definitely better films than this overall. But this film is still, in its own right, worth a watch. It, it, it's, 
it's like the last starfighter meets like fantasy neverending story meets uh what's the other one flight of the navigator kind of but this is better than flight of the navigator flight of the navigator i mean i remember as a kid i was like oh this is so cool and i mean watching it now i'm like oh it's same with like indian in the cupboard oh god i don't know why i thought of that but that movie is just ugh, it's bad don't don't rewatch it. you're gonna ruin your childhood <laughs> Roger Corman, the uh, producer, said to the editors, as I stated momentar- momentarily, yeah, momentarily ago, because that makes a lot of fucking sense. What an idiot. Uh, that they could pull from the previous films, and indeed they did, so they had uh, approval from him to do so. Uh, Legacy's concern, as I said, the reception is that it has a, uh, a higher and softer improvement to Corman's barbarian films of the 80s, more or less because of his uh, gratuitous use of nudity compared to this. It's a little more tame, a little more family-oriented. But uh, I didn't expect anything going into it, whether it would be either way of the uh, spectrum. I just wanted to watch a cool fantasy film. Also in 89, there was a sequel, uh, funny enough, that uh, Roger at a wedding with uh, writer Ed Naha uh, mentions, he mentions to Corman at the wedding, uh, jokingly, remember that wizard, uh, you know, in the Lost Kingdoms movie that we did? And, uh, Corman says to him, you know, that that did well on video and we actually filmed a sequel. So there you have it. A cool story, bro. Needs more dragons and a sequel. Yeah. Pun intended there. <laughs> also, lastly, uh, it was riffed on the 11th season in the not too distant future on Mystery Science Theater 3000. So, the last two films in my little review that I just did on this episode weren't necessarily the best that I covered on my show, but definitely worth a sit through. I mean, they're both what, an hour and ten. You can watch them both in like two hours. You can fucking clean house and throw it on and pay attention to it in the background. I mean, I sometimes I do stuff like that, you know. So I would I would recommend watching them for those of you that enjoy watching you know good bad films quote unquote so there you have it episode 49 in the bag thank you so much for the love and support everybody have a good night i hope to be on here a little more often you know than uh anticipated sometimes life happens and i'm not able to do so so thank you as always for the love and support everybody good night